Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Tuesday, April 25th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and tap on the link or click on the link in the upper left-hand corner that says Start Here, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book, His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Just click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app. That app contains the Reality Management Worksheet, also contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon and Klingon game which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. And we help people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives as they apply these tools actively in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments and questions, answers and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. Give us a call at 563 
3581. And if you call that number and press 1 on your phone, it'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I will then turn on your microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. We appreciate when people do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service, and that's far easier for us to do when you let us know how we can be of service, how these things are landing for you. When we do a worksheet live on the air or we read passages from one of the books that we share or we bring in factors from other sources that either run parallel to or directly coincide with what we're talking about in Dr. Michael Rice's set of tools and in our support groups and in places like A Course in Miracles and The Way of Mastery, A Course of Love, and several other resources we've shared over the years all with the purpose of helping us understand how is it that this mind-body energy system functions and what can we do to be more consciously creating for our preferred outcomes. I can't get everything I want out of life, but I can get a whole lot more of what is available to me with a lot less, let's call it frustration and drama and trauma, if I learn to stay focused on what it is that I actually have control over and use those things consciously to create things I would prefer. And I'm creating not always the outside events in my life, and yet I am always creating my interpretation of my choice of how to respond to and therefore my experience of everything going on in my life. And this is one of the deep truths that we find taught in great spiritual traditions. And every time we find that same truth, we we share it. And we share how this particular teacher or that particular teacher speaks of that truth slightly differently. And as we keep exploring it from slightly different perspectives, observing the same fundamental axioms of truth about natural law or divine law, whatever you want to call it, then our lives are what we can control in our lives becomes more easily readily acceptable to us or accessible to us. So I wanted to mention before I forget about it that today is a Tuesday and so there will be a support group offered through Zoom absolutely free. If you want to join us or know somebody who does, the information about how to join us is available at mindshifters.com academy.org website and there is a separate information page for the Tuesday group and a separate one for the Thursday group. I also wanted to mention that today the interview, the podcast interview I did with 
Laura McGowan, uh, discussing her second book, actually got launched today. And that's available at the onyourmindpodcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And this is discussing her second book, which is uh, Push Off From Here. And um, <laughs> I, I don't think it's one of my best efforts as an interviewer. I think I talked too much. But I think the conversation is um, is good, and you can get a good sense of what her book is, and uh, hopefully a good sense of why I have found both of her books to be so valuable. And we have plenty of time for comments, questions, discussion, um, comments about the lessons I have been reading from or the essays I've been reading from the book A Walk in the Physical by Christian Sundberg or anything else we've discussed over the last 12 plus years. Um, <clears throat> I had the occasion to listen to um, Michael's show yesterday and he's got a new perspective where he's talking about our ego, our perception, our, our literal process of perception is artificial intelligence. It does exactly what artificial intelligence does, and it is just as flawed as the artificial intelligence. Because it takes input from our senses, or in the case of artificial intelligence, it takes input from different sources, whether that is a programmer programming in something or accessing data and the data stream from any other computer it can tap into, and it creates a picture. And it believes that the picture it's creating is the truth, is the reality, is all there is. And that's what our perception does, and that's why so many of us are so stuck experiencing our lives negatively or through the filter of shoulds, and therefore not learning and growing based on actuality, based on a wide open field of view with no distortions and Michael would say that what he's doing and presenting these tools and what we're all encouraged to do invited to do is to learn at deeper and deeper levels how whatever perception we are creating that leads to a pain a fear a sadness a guilt a shame etc is off the mark and the more we can understand that we can understand the way the system works and how best to use the feedback to our own advantage the better our quality of life can become so here's to that here's to the invitation 
Here's to each of us in our own time accepting that invitation to the best of our ability and um, and growing through that accepting that invitation and what we can do with it with our skills and our resources, creating a life that we prefer. And of course, in this work, that's centered around love. Love, what is love? Love is this actuality. Love is the energy of creation. Love is expansive. Love through the uh, the words in the way of mastery. Love allows all things, embraces all things, trusts all things, accepts all things, and thereby transcends all things. Well, one way to think about that is that love is the opposite of judgment. Because in judgment, there is a comparison, there is a labeling, there is a, a relating to something as what I interpret it to be rather than what it truly is. And, and or comparing it to something else. This is a, the idea of a should. Every time I judge, every time I compare, I'm, I'm moving closer to what Guy Finley would call the bitter fruits of that comparative life. And those are the vast majority of mental and emotional and psychological discomforts I have. They are the bitter fruit of a comparative life. I forget what the day is, but I, 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 I'm going to stop that there so I don't go down the trail of repeating what we did in a, a, on a show not too long ago where I was talking about the, the story of the Garden of Eden, the story of the um, the decision to eat from the tree of the fruit of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. And so that's in a, a previous show within the past month or so, so we don't need to go back there. But 563-999-3581, comments, questions, answers, testimonials are all welcome. Area code 828, is this Magda? Yes, hello, and how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Um, you sound a little bubbly, so I'm not sure what's happening, but I do understand everything you're saying, so um, I just want okay, to... Okay, uh, so, so let me just yeah. stop you. Since you don't yeah. sound bubbly, let me hang up and call back in. Okay. Just breathe, count to ten, I'll be right back. <laughs> How am I sounding? The same. The same, yeah, huh? It is the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's just leave it at that since we don't have a better way to resolve that technical issue and ask how can we support you today? Well, I, I have only a few minutes. I have to get back to a project I'm working on while I listen. And I do want to share this. Um, um, something happened yesterday that was a wonderful textbook kind of example of 
what you and Dr. Rice have been teaching. Uh, and it was how I put my own interpretation on what was going on and got myself very angry because of my interpretation. Um, it was such a simple situation where I was uh, working in the kitchen and <clears throat> um, something dropped that made a off the, off the cart that I was working on and made a humongous big clatter. Sounded sounded really mm, extremely loud and possibly like a dangerous situation might have occurred. Uh, Chuck was in the other room on the phone and what happened was he didn't respond at all to that noise. He didn't yell out, are you okay? or come and look to see if, you know, I was bleeding or anything like that, which, of course, were, were my expectations, my goals for him. And um, because he didn't do that, I found myself uh, creating my own interpretation, which was that he heard it, but he didn't care, that his uh, conversation on the telephone was much more important than checking out my well-being. And so I went around in a huff when he got off the phone, <laughs> poor guy, and huffed at him. And um, and he said, golly, I didn't even hear it. I was so intent on, on the conversation that was going on because it was a very important conversation, actually. And um, and I didn't hear it. So it took me a half a second to believe that. And then I thought, oh, okay, he didn't hear it. And how can I blame him for that? And I was still angry. But then we decided to, to you know, he would go one way, I'd go another physically and deal with it later. And about three minutes after he left the room, I realized, oh, my goodness, what happened was it triggered my memory of something that many things that had happened with my father. And my father, everything that he was doing or saying or being was always much more important than anybody else. And I was applying that to Chuck. And as soon as I realized it was like, oh, wow, it all, all of Are you there? Hello, Magda. Hello, Magda. I am going to turn on the microphone for Susan Bingham. Susan Bingham? Hi. Are you there? I am there, did and Ma you are choppy. We're, we're able Magda to hear you. Silent? Oh, I thought she came back. Yeah, she came back. And I, so can I'm, you hear I'm her now? Her. Yeah, yes. I can hear her. Can okay. you hear her, Dr. Did, Tim? I can hear her now, but did you hear her just go silent in the middle of a sentence? I did. Oh. Okay. Okay, yep. so Magda, You're if ready? you could back up to, and so and so what happened? You, you realized that the anger you were generating and blaming on your partner was mm -hmm. coming from 
your experience with your father where everything he did was always more important than what you were doing. Mm. And then right. what? Then I lost you. Well, actually, what, what happened was all of my anger disappeared. Boom, gone. And I was able to be in a space of love again and um, apologize appropriately and everything was fine. To me, what, what was so important about it was how clear that example was in my mind that that whole situation was just textbook to me. And the second thing was that I saw it so easily and quickly. And I think that's because of practice and listening to your show and Michael's show and, and able to have that framework in my mind that set me up to put the pieces together. And and so I really, um, I just wanted to share how important it is to continue using the tools so that it becomes automatic, almost automatic. And uh, and that's it. That's all I wanted to, to share. Okay. And I, I love the example, and I... When I catch that in myself, I use it to program my own thinking to say, okay, so whenever I get angry at anyone or anything, yeah. I realize I'm doing it. It's like this quote that I have cited several times from the Way of Mastery in the third lesson where it says, um, You're going to have anger. Of course you're going to have anger. I have a right to feel my anger. And he says, I say unto you, yes. And I would extend that to say some validity to it outside what I'm creating in my own head. Mm -hmm. And so when I have a situation like the one that you're describing, I try to use it to program myself to be aware, okay, not just in this situation, but the next time and the time after that when I generate anger or upset, that my first priority needs to be dismantle that intense emotional energy because unless I dismantle it, I can't see clearly. I'm, you know, the biblical phrase is I'm seeing through a glass darkly or... Mm-hmm. You know, my my judgment is so distorted that if I were on the witness stand in a trial, um, the opposing counsel would want me in that state, so because they know that's where we make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So it does right. a number of things to distort my judgment and distort my view of life. Whenever I have that strong negative emotion, and that reminds me of uh, the thing that came to me a few years ago to say. My new definition for being stuck is any time I have a negative emotion active in my mind. And my new definition for being hopelessly stuck is when I am arguing for my negative emotion. Mm-hmm. I have every right to be angry at him because he didn't come running to see how I'm doing and whether or not I'm bleeding or lying here half dead. I have every right to expect that out of a partner. If I'm arguing like that, I'm hopelessly stuck. Right. 
Yeah. Very agreed. That's very much really the same. And we all do it because we've all been conditioned to do it. We've been trained to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. and with that, the training, that's why, go ahead. What I'm seeing is that the training in in the forgiveness process has provided me with is the ability to very quickly realize that it's my that I'm I'm doing some kind of creation here. And it's my my stuff. So I look for, the thing I look for is the goal that I held for the person. And forgiving the goal and, and going through the process of forgiveness. Now, because of the, the um, forgiveness pattern that you have provided, which I've been using, uh, I also am more in tune with being open to Okay, where did that come from? And I wasn't looking for that piece of information. Uh, it just came forward. I, I'm not sure why, but it did. And so what I do, act, I actively look for the goal, and, and that really helps immensely. I didn't have to actively look for the source. The original source, it just came up, and to me, that's that's like the, the next step and the next deeper step. Well, and, and that's you know what Michael Rice would talk about in years past. He would talk about if you do this work with diligence, persistently, consistently. He has all these phrases. He uses all these words for it. But if you do it long enough over time, you can reach a place he called process point, which means yeah. in in a breath, in between heartbeats, you can have the flash of insight and the release of the dynamic that you were holding on to that was creating the pain or fear or sadness. And that's basically what you were just describing, this you may not be living at process point, but you had a process point there. Quite quickly, you realized, oh, this is this is connected to the stuff I downloaded from interacting with my father. Yes. Thank you for reminding me of that process point concept. I thank you so much. That's that's great. Now I can well, it's one of those things that. That, that can help motivate people who are um, hungry for a certain or a particular result in, in a certain yeah. you know prescribed period of time. And the idea of a process point can be useful because you know it's very similar to um, somebody who wants to learn to play baseball, but they've never held a bat or thrown a pitch before. And they see mm-hmm. this on TV and they think they ought to be able to do what these pro athletes are doing. And they get very frustrated because, you know, their arm gets sore or because they can't hit the ball or swing the bat the right way. And, but if they are willing to really pour their time and energy and effort into it and they get some good coaching, they can get significant progress. As a matter of fact, they'll reach some points where they jump up in their ability 
seemingly overnight. And so they're not going to stay stuck at that initial level, that beginner's level. But they do have to start at the beginner's level. They do have to be willing to, Mm -hmm. and yet you can look forward to something like this, you know, this big jump or this process point. So it doesn't always have to be as laborious and slogging. Um, There was a a podcast that involved um, Michelle Pache, and I was saying, it might might have been from the December 30th, 2015 show where part of it was, um, she said, you know, one of the things I'll agree with is when you say that it gets easier over time, she said when she first started doing this, she was just absolutely convinced that she needed to be right. And her fighting to be right about things kept her stuck. But she's mm-hmm. realizing over time, the more she gives up the need to be right, the easier it is. And she can still get pretty triggered, but it resolves faster. Right. Exactly. So there is, there is that that effect of practice that we don't talk about that much. And mm-hmm. at the same time we say that, you know, I like to remind people, I don't imagine I'm ever going to be done you know, learning and growing. And as so many of these teachings talk about, if you are part of the infinite consciousness, if you are part of an infinite being, how can you ever be finished learning about yourself? So I'm I'm not looking for the goal line. I'm just looking to enjoy the process and get mm-hmm. better as I can. Mm-hmm. Agreed, agreed. Um, I, can you mute me? I need to get back to my uh, the rest of this stuff going on here in the kitchen. But um, I want to listen. Thank All you. All right, but stay so safe because even if Chuck doesn't care about you, we do. <laughs> Thank you so much. Blessings. Horrible thing is he came and put his arms around me and he said, "Oh, I love you," you know, and I I just totally rejected it. I wasn't there, but and I will. I'm yes, I accept your your caring. So thank you. All right. Blessings. Bye bye. Doctor Shannon, all right. You are still here, Susan. Oh, okay. I have a thought. Um. That moment when you're triggered, it, it's, I really think of the satisfying of a trigger, the, the, the zapping of someone before you've caught yourself is like an addiction. It's really no different to me than a, an, addic- an addiction. There's a tiny, nasty little thrill in giving out the zing. You don't feel good for very long, but you get this little (laughs) something. And I've been watching that because that's that's why we want to do it. I should speak for myself. That's why I I want that little piece of satisfaction that I'll have to deal with later. But right then... It's like probably like taking a a shot of whiskey for somebody who's addicted to alcohol or something. 
Exactly, exactly. And that's why Dr. Michael Rice, a while back, um, it, it didn't last too long, but he did have in his patter, he was he had realized that he's going to start talking about how anger is not an emotion, it's a drug. <laughs> yeah, right. right? He still because, does because he was, that. He was recognizing the same thing. And he doesn't always, but he it's it's something yeah. that is just a it's right in line with your observation that you know anger is something that I use to numb myself out from or distract myself from a pain, a fear, or sadness that some part of me has decided I don't want to deal with or I can't deal with. Mhm. Which leads and to the whole. Go ahead. It leads to the whole what? Huh. I've been thinking about addictions in general, and I know Magda thinks about it too because she talks about sugar. I've I forgot my phone the other day, and I was very anxious about getting back to it to make sure nothing was happening that I didn't need to know about. And I'm thinking before the age of iPhones, which was very recent, I didn't have that whole thing. So there's a whole lot with um, the technology and how locked into it many of us are, and I'm one of them. I fantasize to say maybe I should have one day a week where I just don't have a phone at all. I leave it in a drawer. I haven't, you know, even for Lent, I thought I'm going to give up my iPhone for Lent except to deal with calls or of course, if you're dealing with calls, then you've got the phone in your hand. It's like having the drink in your hand. And to not bring it up to your mouth is asking a lot. So I haven't done it. I gave up something else for Lent that was much easier to give up, and that was sugar, <laughs> which is much easier. But anyway, I think about the phone as a means of avoiding feeling anything. I grab my phone because I'm suddenly ill at ease or bored or restless or something. There's so much to be looked at that the phone is keeping us from looking at me. I should speak for myself. Um, I had a friend who lost her phone for a whole week, couldn't find it. I said, how are you doing with this? And she said, well, I don't like it, but, you know, they, you know, they call my, my roommate. I, I get my information. I can check the computer for my emails. I'm okay. And I thought, my God, you're an elevated creature. <laughs> you're, you're, you're okay. You're, you're thinking this person's an elevated human being because they can get by without their iPhone? <laughs> yeah. Just think about what that says about the dependence and the brainwashing. I know. I know, Dr. Tim. It's really gross. Mm, yeah. Even my husband, he says, well, boy, I'm worried about you. You're on there quite a lot. And I say, well, you know, I'm in contact with a lot of people. I made my excuses. But he's right. So anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's just a matter of rather than, you know, beating yourself up over it, just think about, okay, so is this life that you have created now with the iPhone something you prefer over the one you had before? And if you do, fine, keep doing it. And if not, then come up with some solutions. 
I don't even remember what life I had before, Dr. Tim. I don't remember what it was like. It was probably pretty good. But no better, no. I like my life a lot. That's a hard question. It's different. Anyway, I'll allow you to leave well, that I'm whole thing. Suggesting it's, I'm suggesting that rather than beating yourself up over it. Okay. I'm just suggesting just be- that you... Right. That you just say, well, this is this is what's happening now, and then mm-hmm. I can look at it and just honestly assess for myself: Do I prefer this or not? I don't need to beat myself up over, you know. That's literally a, the right there. You're getting into the bitter fruits of a comparative life. You're beating yourself up because you're comparing what your assessment of yourself today is to what you think you should be doing. Oh, yeah. That is so true. I could compare several examples. Yeah. I read an article sometime. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) I'll tell about the article later. The the, the thing I was going to say was that, you know, I was listening to Dr. Michael Rice's show from yesterday, and at one point, you know, Dr. Michael Rice was saying, you know, you trigger me, and then I trigger you, and then around and around we go. And it's it's very, very valuable for me. My work has gone to the next level by realizing nobody triggers me. Nothing outside me triggers me. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's and the only thing that's a trigger for me is when I choose an interpretation for these completely neutral external events that is in resonance with some trauma or pain that I carry inside of me. Mm -hmm. I'm the one that chooses that. And I encourage people when I work with them and in support groups and things, I encourage us to look at this and just observe it for ourselves. Every time you decide to get upset about something, you can take a look at it and ask yourself, has this ever happened in the past where I didn't get upset at all or I got upset much less than this or I laughed it off? And what you'll see is, yes, there are times, right? There are some people, if they chew with their mouth open, you just kind of laugh it off and say, well, that's, you know, that's old, that's old Betty. She just, you know, she can't help herself. And if your partner chews with his or her mouth open at the dinner table, you just want to stab them. Right. (laughs) Just look at the interpretation that we put on the thing and understand that that is the cause of our upset and our triggering, not the event itself. Mm -hmm. So the example I use, and I've said this before about the families down in Washington, Illinois, where the tornado came through and wiped out, you know, a whole block of houses and whatnot. Yeah. And the news crews went in and said, okay, so, you know, let, let us interview you. And oh, we're great. We're just so grateful. You know, blessed be the Lord, et cetera. We've been saved. And that's just stuff that got destroyed and, you know, everybody's safe. And that's not what the news crew wanted to hear. So they made a beeline down just the next house over that is no longer there. It's at the end of a driveway. There's a hole in the ground with a pile of rubble. 
how are you doing? Oh, wailing and gnashing of teeth about all the memories that are lost that can't be replaced. And But didn't you have insurance? Okay. Yes, but it can't replace the memories. And, you know, the God hates us and whatever. Same outside event. If you say that the outside event triggered this mm-hmm. response in these people, I think you're missing the direct observation, which is there was the outside event, there was a choice of how to interpret it and respond, and then there was the upset or the gratitude. And so the mm-hmm. thing that resonates with whatever traumas, pains, or sadness, or fear I might have within me is the interpretation I choose, not the outside event, not what a person says or does. So I'm not triggering you, and you're not triggering me. I can choose an interpretation that resonates my upset or creates new upset within me, even if you're doing what you consider to be the most loving thing you can think of. The Magda and Chuck example is one of those. Yeah. You know, Chuck thinks he's doing the right thing. He's there in the moment. He's paying attention to the phone call. He's all tuned in. You know, he's probably got a life that he's set up with Magda where he's loving and respectful for her the best way he knows how. And she decides to throw an interpretation on it that says he doesn't care about her. Uh, yeah. Now, if you asked Magda, Magda, we've we've gotten the um, the listening audience for the Mind Shifters Radio. We've got them together. We've we've, we've done a, a a poll, and we've all agreed we need to do an intervention. Magda, we're showing up at your house tomorrow to get you out of there because you shouldn't be living with a man who absolutely doesn't care if you're bleeding <laughs> in the kitchen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think her response would be? Oh, thank goodness you're coming to save me. Or do you think she'd say, no, I don't really believe that he doesn't care about me? Right. And yet, when she chooses that interpretation and places it on this situation where she's working in the kitchen and something falls and makes a loud crashing noise and she doesn't get a response that she wants from him, Mm -hmm. she generates all that upset she generates the thought, he doesn't care about me. And and the associated negative emotions that go with it. But if you asked her, are you really living with someone that doesn't care if you live or die or if you get hurt, what do you think her answer is going to be? Yeah. We're all like that. Every upset yeah. I experience was created inside and it was not created because somebody triggered me or the life circumstance triggered me. It was created because of the interpretation I chose and placed on that behavior or event or experience. Yeah, I have an example of the exact opposite of what happened to Magda and it's so cute I have to tell it. Kingdom is a very... Tim Bingham is rather slow moving. No, he's not sluggish, but he's big and he he moves much more slowly when we walk. I have to hold back to not hurry ahead of him. And 
one day years ago, I was down practicing the piano and I turned around to this enormous file cabinet and pulled out an upper drawer and the lower drawers didn't have much in them and the whole file cabinet fell over on me. And he heard the crash and me yell and I'm telling you, I never saw that guy move so fast. He was in his, you know, underwear came ter- I didn't know he was capable and the thought came to me wow he really he really cares about me <laughs> if he could run that fast which is totally out of character but it's just a sweet little memory that came up but I evidently had a low grade belief that Tim Bingham's care for me was you know not past a certain level and somehow that incident proved otherwise which is as false as any other thing like it's just as false as what Magda in its own way it's probably not true either but we do make things out of things <sighs> yeah well, yeah but if it's, if it's really true if Magda thought we yeah. probably should go rescue her from that guy yeah from that life does don't you think just based on the few things you've heard from her that she deserves to live with somebody who loves and respects her and cares about her mhm so if her thoughts about chuck not really caring if she lives or dies or if she's bleeding in the kitchen if there was any truth to it it would mean fundamental changes should be made in her life and we miss all of that, right? Because in the moment, mm. we, we buy into the belief and the upset, and we let that distortion, that filter, that myopic view be our reality, and we think this is the truth, and we start acting from it. Mm. Did you hear what she yeah. said? He came up behind her and wrapped his arms around her in a hug, and she wasn't having it because she was still focused <laughs> on you you don't care about me because you didn't come running because and it's just so we are so insane illogical contradictory in our thoughts but because we have them we tend to think they come from a pretty good source and we believe them mhm which is which is why one of my favorite bumper stickers is don't believe everything you think <laughs> yeah that's good Question everything. Learn to live in the question, as Rilke would say. Mm. Why? Because we are so limited in our perception. And our perception is so often a distortion based on our traumas and our upsets that it only makes sense to question everything. And especially if you wake up to the realization that any negative emotion you experience or any negative thought running in your mind is the mark. You're not. And the first and most important thing to do if that's the case is take the blindfold off, right? If you're walking around blindfolded, what should I do? What should I do? Take the blindfold off. Then you can see what's going on and then decide what to do. But if you're in anger or fear or sadness at a high enough level, you're blind to the truth of what's actually happening. You're not seeing things accurately. So top priority should be 
dismantle the negative emotional state, understand what you're doing with your thoughts to create that negative emotional state, and change them. Then when your vision clears, your perception expands, now you can ask yourself, what should I do? But think about it. Chuck comes to give Magda a hug, an expression of love, apology, compassion, whatever, caring, and she rejects it. The very thing mm. that she said she thinks she wants. I know. How often do each of us do exactly that without understanding that we're the ones doing it? Mm. Creating our emotional upset. We are the ones who have chosen the interpretation of life that triggers our negative response. Life doesn't trigger our response. People outside of us don't trigger our response. Our choice of interpretation is the triggering mechanism. If we wake up to that, then we can be more and more vigilant for the earliest warning signs that we've gone into a negative thought or a negative emotional state and choose again. Choose yep, differently. The addiction, the addiction is addiction to blame, to seeing that somebody did that to me. I am a victim. Why is that an addiction? Hmm. Well, I mean, part most of our addictions are just because of the the habit pattern, right? Most of our addictions mm. are just because we're trained into it. And the other part of the addictive process is that it's something that helps us numb out from or avoid another thing that's painful or, as Michael Rice would say, help us avoiding seeing and acting from our highest guidance. Why would I not want to act from my highest guidance? Well, if my highest guidance tells me to do something that's going to take a lot of responsibility on my part and a lot of work and adjustment, I may not want to do it. Let's say I'm living, I'm working in a situation where my and my job it's abusive and I'm making enough money to pay my bills and all, but it's really taking its toll on me mentally and emotionally. And my highest guidance says, Tim, get out of this abusive pattern. Quit this job. Find something else that's more in line with your values and priorities and feeds you in different ways. But that's a lot of work. And that means, you know, going without some money and maybe some of the things I like, you know, the old golden handcuffs business. I I can't leave the job because I make too much money at it. So that's just one simple example of how I might not, want to see and follow my highest guidance helps me stay distracted from that that can be part of the addictive process especially if I'm doing it as Michael Rice would say compulsively Mm. but the point I was trying to make is that every one of us has been programmed into these nonsensical contradictory, you know, blinded to our own role in creating our experience patterns of thought.
and Boy, our work. No. Go ahead. The, the persistent what? No, thank. You. They are so persistent. Like it, our work boils down to the same things happening over and over and over. Yes, and being able to see that that's happening and that we're basically living, like Michael Rice would say from his three early memories of conflict exercise, I'm basically reliving the patterns I downloaded at four and six and eight years old when I'm 64 and 66 and 68. I'm just living the same pattern, the same year, the same responses over and over and over again. Yeah. You know, that idea. Go ahead. The idea what? That idea of um, comparing, um, I don't know who introduced me to it, but I've been doing this little New York Times spelling bee word puzzle first thing in the morning. Instead of meditating, instead of composing, instead of exercising, I get up extremely early and I just can't wait to see how many words I can get. <laughs> and I, you know, I think, I'm wasting my time. And then this woman wrote an article about how, how good these little games are for us. And I forget what she said, but I thought, whoa, maybe this is really a good thing to do. And I'm still sort of in a limbo. Some days I'll say to myself, I'm not going to do it until I take, I'm taking a break from working. And I did that for a couple of days. That's another thing I could have given up for Lent is the word puzzle. Good grief. And now my son's doing it. And even at work, between surgeries, he'll say, L-I word with seven letters. I can't find it. And we cheat. We sort of compare <laughs> I don't know. I'm telling you. So anyway, you were going to say something. Yeah, the invitation is to just be vigilant and to just understand that it's the same thing over and over again and it's the same solution over and over again. Cancel my need to be right and ask to be shown something else. And, you know, understand that it's only my ego that wants to be right. And it's my ego that's creating and then experiencing the pain and then blaming it on someone else or something else. So, you know, there's my path to liberty by recognizing, you know, what's actually causing the upset and what can be done to choose again, as Diedrich Wolzak would say. But once you step into the realization that you are actually the author of your experience, that you are the one who's choosing whatever the interpretation is that you choose for whatever happens, and that everything that everybody else does is just a neutral event. And then people say, but what if this person's attacking me and they really want me to hurt and they really want to insult me? And I say, good, that's Thank you for asking that question. That's where I pull out the, 
something that came to me a few years ago. Please don't take offense, even if it's offered. Yeah, I love it. Even if somebody comes at me trying to tear me down, trying to get me to feel bad or mad or sad or angry, use the humility. What is that? Me Raging, screaming, insults, you know, maybe trying to throw things at my head or whatever. I should duck and keep myself safe, but I don't need to attack that person. I can see them as their true nature and then choose to cooperate only with their true nature. What's their true nature? They're another being of brilliance and light, just like everyone else that I interact with. In this moment, they've either temporarily forgotten or they've yet to discover their brilliance, or they wouldn't be throwing insults or, you know, china plates or whatever it is that they're throwing. And I can relate to them in their true nature from my true nature if I refuse to take offense even if it's offered. Mm. Please don't take mm. offense, even if it's offered. I love that. And then that puts me at liberty to choose again, to choose something else. To tap into my true nature and extend that towards them. To tap into the realization of their true nature and hold up the mirror for them which gives them an opportunity to see that. That's the invitation. And I just looked at the clock and realized that's also the end of our hour. So thank you for the call. Right. Okay. And, uh, well, thanks for the show, Dr. Tim, as usual. All right. Very Blessing. good. Thanks. Blessing. Thanks. Blessing. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. Welcome, Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. You're very welcome and deserving. Have a wonderful show. Thank you. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of Mindshifters Radio, and today is Tuesday, April the 25th, 2023. And our calling number is 563 nine 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 three five eight one and press one and that way we would love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. We'll give Michael a moment to dial in. We've been outside, we uh been putting together a archway, a trellis, and we had bought some grapevines. And so we're gonna plant we've planted two of them. We've got two more to go and let them climb over the trellis. And that'll be our walkway into our flower garden. So we're excited about that. We got that done this morning and uh, working in the garden. I've got some basil plants to put in the inside garden. And it's coming together and it's it's feeling good. So welcome, Michael. Something outside of me made me feel good. <laughs> and are you with us? I am. Hi. What what was it outside of you that made you feel good? Oh, putting the archway and planting the grapevines oh. and and the bushes and getting ready to put the basil plants in the inside garden and just getting the flowers and things started. Yeah, it's cool to see it all coming together. Yeah. Watching what the results will be, and we found this awesome, huge. Um, 
home ground, um, what do you call it, uh, wild seed tomato, and so we save some tomatoes, and hopefully we're going to have some of those this summer. So. Rock and roll. So what do you have on your agenda, dear heart, being excited about the garden? I don't. I'm wedding right now, so <laughs> I'm just cooling down. Well, do we have anybody in the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? We do not. It is all quiet on the phone. Not a word. Okay. Well, then let's rock a forward hand. and take a uh, Okay, a let's do that. I'd rather have up. a conversation. Yes. Absolutely. Good. And so this is, um, I think, Cecilia at Terry Coast 480. You're on the air. Am I unmuted? Hello? You are rock and roll. We can hear you loud and clear. What's on your mind today? What are you working oh, through? How can we support oh, you? I go in and out of work into the house and everything, but, you know, and and the hallucination thing about, you know, my family not being there to support me or that they didn't think that I was any good singing or whatever. And, and I'm, like, using the mind shifters to go, no, they loved my singing in, in, in actuality. <laughs> I hallucinated everything else. But, you know, the one question that I had, which is really cool to work on that stuff like that, but what what I, I remember uh, a couple of days ago you, you had suggested I, I go on YouTube and watch Anal Seth, right? You remember you told Anil me. Anil Seth, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, Anil, okay. How did that, so, um, how did his presentation strike you? That's a powerful TED Talk, isn't it? I'll tell you, it, it's like listening to Martians compared to you, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, can't follow this, you know? You know, because I was really... Got to build the brain cells. Yes. So I thought maybe there's like his own website or something that it, he, is there any, can you clarify some of the stuff that he talks about? Sure. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that's exactly the same conversations we're having. Basically, okay. he's a neuroscientist at uh, University of, hmm, I don't remember which one in, uh, in England, London. And basically what he's saying is that everything that our eyes seem to show us is an hallucination. You know, we, we've been taught, you and I have been taught all our lives, when we've spoken our lives, so I looked out there and I saw that happen. Gee, you know, I'm looking across the room and I'm looking at a picture on the wall. Well, that's just a lie, and he's proving it from a neuroscience point of view. So we've been trained that we look out through this set of peepholes in our, in our head called eyes, and we see what's happening out there. When we get down, and and that's just, you know, it's, it's one of the uh, convenient lies that we tell ourselves, and then there's an inconvenient aspect of it. There are some things that are fantasies, hallucinations, that are useful, like, for instance, time. You know, the fact is there's no such thing as time. We invented a set of hands that rolled around a clock and created this thing called time. But it's useful. 
And it can be useful to say, I saw that and point to it and say, and now you can go over there and, you know, do the same thing. That's a useful fantasy. But when you realize, I don't know, there's something banging around in the background. If we could maybe hit the mute button that, or for somebody, it would be a little quieter. So the scientific truth is you can see nothing through your eyes. The eye is a one-way valve. It's an energy receiver for light. Light comes into the eye. You can't see out of the eye. All the, the eye is is an antenna. So that's one of the basic principles he's talking about. Now, if you, if you think about it as an antenna, you know, imagine going over to your TV set, pulling the antenna off of the back of the TV, and looking into the antenna and, and looking out, you know, you probably don't have, most people have cable these days, but at the time when we had antennas on the roof, can you look out through the wires in your, and to, to your antenna and look out through the neighborhood and see what's going on? No, that's ridiculous. The antenna is a one-way receiver. Frequencies come in are reflected in the TV set. Well, the eye is exactly the same. So rather than seeing what's going on out there, according to the way that our mind has been structured, in response to the information carried by light energy, brain cells fire. If brain cells fire that hold thought disorders that are painful for us, then out of those brain cells firing, we'll build a world. It's a whole, separate, individual world that each and every one of us lives in. It's the world of reality. It's a construct of the mind. That's why six different people can go into a courtroom and testify about the accident they were at, and all six of them will have such different stories that you wonder if they were at the same accident. Well, in actuality, yes, they were in the same space, experiencing the same actual event. But the energy that came from that event resonated or fired brain cells in each one of them, and each one's mind hallucinated a reality which they projected upon the actuality. So, in essence, we've got two different worlds going on. There's the world of actuality. There's what the creator created. And then each mind hallucinates, structures, a picture world that we call reality and every person's reality is different because the content of every person's mind is different and once you recognize that then you start to realize that each construct of the mind each perceptual construct has a quality let's imagine the quality goes from one to ten if your reality is a level 10 quality, then it matches pretty well with actuality and you're going to rock along and things are going to tend to go pretty well. But if the actuality is a 2 on a scale of 1 to 10, people are going to look at you and say, are you crazy? What are you talking about? That's not what just happened. So let's say one has painful realities in their minds, painful content unresolved about relationships. So they meet someone they're attracted to and then someone's attracted to them and they decide to hang out and enter a relationship. And things roll along very well until the person that we're in relationship with sends out an energy. It might be a verbal 
command or word. It might be a, a look. It might be a gesture. And if that gesture resonates something that is unresolved, painful content inside of my mind, then my mind will structure a picture. A picture, I think, is of them out of my pain. And if I live in the one world religion of blame, then I will say, let's say they resonated something that has to do with anger in me, which would mean I'm probably at about a level one or two reality. I'm going to say, and you made me so angry. So trying to pretend that something out there is the cause of what's moving in me. Now that something out there is certainly the thing that resonates what's moving in me, but it's got to be in me before it can move. So when I say, let's say, if, if you do something that brings up anger in me and I say, you made me mad, I just told you and myself a huge lie. Mad is something inside of me. Yes, you may have done something that resonated it so properly I could say and honestly, accurately I could say, gee, you know, what you just said resonated a lot of rage in me. And I realize I have some rage to heal. So thanks for showing me that. Would you support me in healing it? That would be the person who lives in awareness of how their mind actually works. The person who has no idea how their mind actually works, and that's what Anil Seth is, trying to, is working to explain, is how the mind actually works. The person who understands that is going to be able to be responsible for the content of their minds, recognize they're at a level two quality of perception and say, you know, this quality of perception is pretty crappy. It's not going to do much for my relationships. So I think what I'll do is go inside myself, deal with that painful content to me, the thought disorders that have been resonated, forgive them, remove them, so that I can move my reality in this relationship from a one or a two to a seven or an eight or a nine or a ten. If I'm living at a ten, and the person that I'm in relationship with this at then, life is going to be rocking. It's going to go pretty well. But if one person's at a 10 and one person's at a 2, life's going to be pretty tough for those folks. The person at 10 may just decide, well, I'll, I'll just put up with whatever I need to put up with and move forward. The person who's living at a 2 has got all kinds of blame and all kinds of, look what you've done to me. You made me feel this. You made me feel it. And, and lives in a total lie. So correcting the lie means removing the corrupt content based in blame, hostility, and fear, and upgrading the function of my perceptual system so that, well, it can't give me the actuality, the experience of actuality. It can give me a reality that's relatively close to the actuality. And life is just going to get easier and more fun and, you know, relationships are going to be a whole lot more fun. So that would be my summation of Anil Seth's uh, TED Talk. And anyone that's listening, if you go to YouTube and just put in Anil, A-N-I-L-S-E-T-H, TED Talk, you'll find that talk and it's awesome. I mean, he's, he's basically repeating, I think... If I remember correctly, I think it was Dr. Tim that found this video back four or five years ago. I mean, this has been the core of our teaching for, for half a century. But uh, Anil Seth came along and gave us some science to put behind it, which is pretty pretty powerful. So does that make sense of what he said? Is that uh, fitting in place? Yes. Well, when you, you explain it, it sounds 
more understandable. I don't know. Maybe everybody just has to you just have to wrap your head around different people, and it takes a minute to do that. I probably my guess is why I why yeah, it's I so different. Up. I mean, it's so outrageously different from anything we've ever been told. The mind goes, "What are you crazy?" And there are all kinds of blocks to work through to be able to even start yes. to really, truly yes. hear that and apply it. Yes. Uh, sometimes I, I'm feeling really like in line with everything that you're, you know, everything that is actual. And and then I go, wait a minute, I don't feel right. I feel really unbalanced. I feel like I'm... That's a hallucination, you know, and, and I had that happen at this morning after I did some mind shifters. I mean, not right afterwards, but, um, and I'm like, this is just like a, my, my, this is how I talk to myself. This is just a um, symptom of healing. I go through the symptoms of healing. And this is just a mental, you know, uh, symptom of healing, what was put in here into my mind, which was not true, is now coming out, and it doesn't feel very good. It feels weird. It feels like I'm disoriented. It feels like, you know, all the great stuff that I'm working on with the tools is is uh, um, is really what messed up and not like. You know, and then I'm like remembering one time you, you said that uh, that if you're how you can tell if you're in a healing crisis or or uh, uh, whatever it is 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 what are you doing? Are you doing all the right things? Yeah, I am doing all the right things. So then I had then I started my mind started going, yeah, okay, okay, I get that, you know. But as you say too, is the mind if it's coming from the mind, it's the mind is just a something. It's not, I don't know what you say about the mind, but it's not where you want to come from. Well, you you know, ultimately, okay. in order to function as a human being, in order to truly heal, you've got to be out of your mind and yeah. recognize that your mind is a device this stores information for you. When you need information from them, you go, okay, mind, give me that. But most people don't do that. They live as though everything their mind says is gospel, and most of it's a fraud. And, and one of the number one ways to tell that what it's telling you is a fraud is there's some form of hostility or fear in it. Hostility yeah. or fear okay. mean that the mind is using corrupt data to build its constructs. And the idea of this work is get rid of the corrupt data so that at least the mind's constructs are on track and accurate about the actuality, even though they're still not the direct experience of the actuality. And there's a whole other set of faculties to de be developed with which you get to experience the actuality directly. And... In the last analysis, since all of our words are based in perception, all of our world's words are about a world that is false, that isn't real. It's an hallucination. And so we, while we want to allude to, you know, there's another game in town we could be playing, 
But since that game is not in common experience, there's hardly even any language that can refer to it. We'll say things like, well, it's, it's sort of like, you know, you go back to the Aramaic, and 2,000 years ago, Yeshua used, for virtually everything, he used a parable. In fact, there's one point where, I forget who it was that says it, one of the disciples says, without a parable, he did not speak. Now, a parable means parallel meaning. You know, so the parable is, well, we'll take something that the mind takes literally and thinks it understands, and we'll lay it alongside something that is parallel, but allows the mind to skip out of its thinking that it knows and give us a different experience. And so let's say, for instance, they said to Yeshua, tell us about the community of love. Now, the Greeks translated those words as, tell us about the kingdom of heaven. And so Yeshua gives them several parables. You notice he doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is this. He tells you where it is. He says it's within you. He tells you when it is. It's here and now. And then he says, and he gives them several parables. It's kind of like this. It's, it's like this. It's like Because all of our words are simply reflections of what's going on in men's minds. All of our language, you know, that, that whole idea of the Tower of Babel, every language, Virginia and I, we did back about, oh, I'm not even sure now, eight or nine years ago, we went, went to about six different countries. We started out in um, Sweden, then we went to Denmark, and then we went to Italy. And by the time we got to Italy, it was kind of, for me, it was like, it was sort of surreal. And... You know, I've been in Sweden, and I hear these people making noises with their lips, and they seem to be able to communicate and understand. I don't have a clue what they're talking about. And we go to Denmark, and the Danes are making these noises with their lips, and they seem to understand each other. I don't have a clue what they're talking about. We go to Italy, and these people are making noises with their lips, and they seem to understand each other. I don't have a clue what they're talking about. And all of a sudden, I went, oh, now I got what the whole story of Babel is. This is all Babel. You and I right now are speaking babble. And that is, our mind constructs a world. We make up grunts and groans and noises we call words to represent that world between our ears. And we sort of have somewhat parallel experiences so we can kind of communicate about that. And the interesting feature of the Aramaic language, the language of not only Yeshua, but of at least five of the world's major religions, is that it's based not in men's minds, but in physics. The, the actual letters of the Aramaic alphabet are 3D shadows of different elements on the periodic table of the elements. So it's actually based in the physics of the world. It's the only language that isn't Babel. And that's why there are many concepts and many words that are like key, core pieces of, of Yeshua's teaching that there are no corollary words in English or you know, Greek or Latin, the languages that we have had the scriptures delivered. There are words that don't even carry those meanings, like there's no such idea. And so it takes a whole paragraph. And one of my favorites, there's actually a program we did a few months ago, maybe a year ago now, 
on the Beatitudes. We spent a couple days on them. And there was a, a gentleman who had been to Heartland, and he decided to do an intensive study of the Beatitudes. So he, we actually, I had him come on, and we had a conversation about the Beatitudes. And the first word in each of the Beatitudes, we're told by the Greeks, it says, blessed are they. Blessed are they who this, blessed are they who that, blessed are they, blessed are they. There's no such idea in the Aramaic language. The word is actually a three-part word, tuvehun, in Aramaic. And if we break that word down, the closest we could get to coming up with enough words for that one word in Aramaic would be a latent neural structure implanted by the Creator to guide you to happiness and well-being becomes your conscious possession, you who. That's one word in, in Aramaic, tuvehun. And so the Greeks took it, delivered it to us as blessed are they. But it's, you know, like it's not even close. And there's so many ideas that have been turned around inside out, upside down, and backward. And that's why the, the, the first and the core tool for healing is that of collapsing the hallucinations, collapsing the realities in our minds. Forgiveness. And once those realities are collapsed, they collapse in on themselves and it gives us access to the root of the unresolved energy and that's when we can start to resolve those energetic patterns. And it took me working with the Aramaic language full-time about 35 years to start to understand what I just explained to you in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> and, and why forgiveness works. Like, you know, I, I have this perfectly wonderful goal. I just want this person to care for me. Like, what's wrong with that? And you're going to tell me I'm supposed to cancel that goal? That sounds really, really stupid. And, yes, if we're programmed with Greek understanding and Greek brain cells, you know, Yeshif, he said in most so-called centers of Christianity today, he'd say, that's all Greek to me. When I have a goal and realize how my mind works, that that goal drives my mind to use certain data to produce my hallucinations. If my hallucinations are based in pain, I need to process through my pain. But how do I do that? When I load a goal, I only see the very tip of the iceberg. That nine-bit pattern that shows me what I think is a picture of someone else with my problem attached, and I think it's all their problem. When I cancel the goal... That construct of my mind based in whatever hostility or fear is in me collapses in on itself. I mean, it took me years to start to comprehend. Oh, that's why. I mean, I taught canceling goal very early when I started to work with the Aramaic. I was introduced to this idea that the word forgive is shabag or shabak, which means to cancel. And I would teach that on occasion, you know, or I, I actually should say in the early days, I would mention that in my workshops. You know, the Aramaic work came along in my life about 
mm, probably seven or eight years into my study. And it was like, well, that's interesting. And in my workshops, I would once in a while mention this thing called forgiveness and, you know, just say, well, try canceling goals. And the thing that really took me back to the Aramaic and got me hooked into it was I had several people who took my word for that on canceling goals and came back and said, Michael, that's really powerful, life-changing stuff when you do that. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> and that's what took me into a deeper study of the Aramaic. And then what is this canceling of goals? Why? How does it work? And as I say, 35 years later, I could finally explain it. Oh, I cancel a goal. My construct collapses. When it collapses, it drops into its own footprint, and now I have the opportunity to process the underlying pain that produces that hallucination that's raging and screaming and blaming somebody else. And I get to clean up, clean up the part of my mind that's raging and screaming and blaming everybody else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like it's mm-hmm. so simple when you got the brain cells for it, but yeah. I have never seen it any. The only other place that I've seen it, aside from coming out of the Kabor's manuscript in the Aramaic, is in A Course in Miracles. A Course in mm-hmm. Miracles describes forgiveness in exactly the same way as uh, the first century Aramaic Yeshua did. So for me, that meets the standard of these two teachings came from the same place. And they simply right. reinforce and support each other. And here's mm-hmm. the practice. Forgive. Are you in pain? Forgive. Is your perceptual construct made out of some form of hostility or fear? Forgive and work through your hostility or fear. Well, but they're the ones who made me so mad. No, you're mad because there's mad in you. You're sad because there's sad in you. You're hateful because there's hate in you. You know, wh- whatever it is, you're that way because it's in you. And the minute we go into denial, you made me hateful. I'm only being hateful because of what you did. Now I'm in denial of my hate, and, and therefore I put it into my brain's image of you. And now I make mm-hmm. a construct and hallucination up with with hatred at the root of my brain's image of you. And I, you know, I mean, geez, I can see the picture. Obviously, it's true. You're the problem in my life. But, of course, then we come up with that tongue-in-cheek line I love so much of notice you've been through it 87 different times with 42 different people, and you're the only one that was there every time. Sooner or later, we've got to start to recognize it's about me. And here are the tools for cleaning it up. So that's what we're here to do is to share those tools. Well, thank you for explaining it again. And I guess that that is not like a, uh, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it when I get it, when I keep working on getting it. Um, I think it was you that said uh, when uh, people cannot know these teachings unless they have the eyes to hear and the ears, I mean the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Ears to hear, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's Yeshua who so, said that. That comes right straight out of the Aramaic. And, yes. and you know, I think we and can safely eyes, assume most every... Go, go ahead. No, the eyes would be that it's your... It's it's what your image is and your eyes is what you see, not what's out there. You've got, the, the, you got the brain cells. Okay. You know, I think what we can safely you, assume that most everybody in his audience had what we call 
physical eyes and ears. Some people were deaf and some were blind, but most of them had eyes and ears. He wasn't talking about the physical thing. He was saying, in order to understand what I'm telling you, you've got to have the brain cells for it. If you don't have the brain cells, it won't make sense. You know, my favorite example of that is most people who come to this work and the first time I mention the word sin recoil and go, ooh, sin, ooh, evil, awful, ugly, nasty, bad, wrong, hell. All, they're all the brain cells that are associated with that word. And then I explain the Aramaic definition or source of the word sin, and it's an archery term. If you're on the archery range and you fire at the bullseye and you miss the bullseye, the scorekeeper yells sin. You're off the mark. That's all it means. So now... The person who hears that, and, and over the years, on 50 years of doing this, th- the most common feedback I get from people that, you know, maybe I'll see somebody 20, 25, 30 years, I haven't seen them. And I'll say, you know what really changed my life? You told me the definition of sin. So they've oh. got a whole new set of eyes and ears for sin when we develop new eyes and ears yes. for perception for love for human life wow. all those things then the game uh, changes yeah yeah and if i'm listening with you know um eyes and ears that are stuffed with all kinds of hostility or fear then it doesn't matter what i hear him say i'm going to try to repeat what he says and i'm going to come out with hostility and fear you know, I, I can't tell you over the years how many people I've worked with that came from what they called deeper religious homes, and they were so emotionally battered and abused and beat up, condemned and terrified of hell. And that's like 10,000 miles away from any world. that Yeshua, if he saw what most of churchianity is doing with their children today, he would be totally and completely appalled. Mm-hmm. Just appalled mm-hmm. that this person is standing up there in the pulpit, the authority figure screaming and raging at little kids about how they're sinners and they're going to go and suffer in a fiery place for eternity. That is one of the worst sins that's ever been committed is that idea. And it is spouted out of the mouths of preachers everywhere. And Mm -hmm. to me, it's a criminal act. Yeah. Yeah. And it sure isn't out of the eyes and ears of Yeshua. (laughs) The brain cells of Yeshua. But people can only hear what's in their brain cell structure until the correction yes. comes. Yes. Yes. So really quick, um, you when I hear you breathe, and I know it's like helping your, I'll just speak for me, me, <laughs> breathe. Um, but, but I also was listening to Dale Hoffman um, and he was talking about breathing. He didn't get it for like 20 years. He tried and tried or whatever. I don't know if that's, if I'm paraphrasing him or not. But anyway, it's, uh, it's so contrary to what I was taught about breathing. <laughs> Even from a, a, a well-renowned voice coach in Los Angeles, he would say, it has to be quiet. Nobody wants to hear your breathing. And, you know, and then that gets uh-huh. me into when I was a kid. I would used to hide on behind the couch and I'd tell myself, don't breathe, don't breathe. I mean, don't make any noise. Don't make any noise when you breathe because you'll get abused, you know. And so, so mm. I want to learn. I want to learn what is the what is what is it with 
it being audible and 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 I know not and holding it and everything is just not dealing with what's in there because of you. Right. But what 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 about the making noises with it? I mean, it, it's so odd with something that you want to do and not come from your head, which is singing. Um, you, you know, you want to come from the, your, your soul. And if you can't make audible sounds breathing, you're not breathing, right? Or something I'm starting mm-hmm. to get because of what I'm learning from you. What is your take on breathing? Is it different for different things? or? Well, you know, if you're going to sing, you're going to breathe much differently than if you're going to do a still point breathing session. Yes. And on the show, especially when somebody's in process, two things. I stay in process personally, so I'm breathing. And I want to remind that person breathes, so I oftentimes will add a little bit of sound or purposely breathe just as a reminder to keep that person's breath moving because when one holds one's breath, that's the way we acquire a past about something. That's the way we get stuck in painful realities around any given issue is by holding the breath and it locks the energy into tissue. And so when one moves into the still point breathing process, which you recall doing, it's way back. And you may not remember much about it from, uh, from that workshop no, you did. It's got to be 25 years ago. That that's a kind of breath that activates and puts people into the ability to process what they've been suppressing and hiding from themselves. And oftentimes, not even just their own lifetimes, but, but the lifetimes of their generations. You watch people in trauma and they hold their breath. They stop breathing. So a pers- purposeful, conscious, connected breath is a whole different process. And yes, yeah, singing is something different again. Yes. Okay. I can get little. Cool. Yeah, but I'm trying to get out of being little. Lit- and you know the cutest thing Terrible. I don't know if it's, it's cute is I was in grade school and throughout grade school and or kindergarten, grade school, high school, and I'd always say, Why, why, why is it why is Pi Square this? Why, why, why is why, why? I'd go after class and talk to the teacher and it would really frustrate them. You know. So but I always wanted to I don't know if why is this happening again? Maybe I was like on the path of why is this happening again? No, I don't know. You but. were searching. You <laughs> yeah. were searching. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, well, by the way, right. in your whole eternal life, you've never frustrated anyone. <laughs> they may have told you you were responsible for their frustration, but you weren't. They were in frustration because they were in frustration, not because of what you did. Okay, you were inquiring. You, you were asking. So yeah. you were never to blame for the crap happening in their minds when they went, why don't you just shut up, kid? I don't, I don't know the answer. I am the authority, the teacher, but you're telling me I don't know the answer, and I don't want to hear that. Uh-huh, <laughs> so, uh-huh. You know, so, so okay. let go of ever having been responsible for their frustration. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So I think I, I might always be a why person. And not why again, but working through the stuff that we're working on, those kind of why. 
Well, you know, you'll notice that this work, throughout it, there's a very strong intellectual thread. Okay. And the reason for the intellectual thread, like, you know, I mean, the title of my book, I'm a why person too. Why is this happening to me again? You know, <laughs> that's, that's the title of my book. But what I realize is that the intellectual journey is there because once the mind asks its first question, it's not going to shut up until it gets its last answer. Once it gets its last answer, then it can let go. Then we can start to live as human beings rather than living in our minds. Okay. Because to really truly live as love, you've got to be out of your mind. So are you saying that once we start living out of our mind, that's when we will never say why again? And then we got to work. Well, I wouldn't, say, I, I wouldn't say we'll never say why again, but why won't be the thing that runs us. Okay, okay. Having to know something. We'll, we'll live as beings instead of living as question marks. I would love to get to that point. Um, and I will. You will. You will. And again, you know, the the idea of first century Aramaic forgiveness is that each time you use it, you weaken the frequencies that emanate from brain cells until that thing shuts up. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) There you you go. (laughs) Yeah, I have something to look forward to. All right, yes. Michael, thank okay. you so much. Okay. All righty, have a blessed one. All right, take care. Thanks. Bye. So, Miss Jeannie, we've got about 20 minutes to rock on here. Do in we have the notes in the for today, no, there are no other hands up. Uh, but I was just going to say, in the notes for today, I put a uh, link to Anil Seth. She had originally asked uh, if he had a website, and it's www.anilseth.com. And he is a British professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex. Sussex in London. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's a great. I mean, his TED Talk is awesome. And um, I also put um, a couple other links, one to the Caboris and to the Beatitudes that you referenced, and um, also uh, easing through a healing crisis. I'll put that link out there. And I found a quote from Anil, too, and it says, this hallucination is not a false perception, perception of something that does not exist, but a perception modeled by our body and controlled by the brain, which applies a kind of prior template to give meaning to what we feel. Right. And and we could go right to, I forget which lesson it is, lesson five or six. In A Course in Miracles, it says, I have given this all the meaning it has for me. That's exactly what Anil Seth is saying. And if our meanings contain hostility or fear, we're in trouble because they're not true. <laughs> Ever. Like, that's the indicator. You don't You don't have to know anything about what happened or who said what or he said, she said, they said, why is the fight going? You don't have to know anything. If there's hostility or fear in it, the mind's lying. 
collapse, it's lies. And when you collapse the lies, you access the parts that hold the meanings based in pain. You access them directly as conscious, active, present love. And when you do, that presence of love begins the dissolution of everything that's false. And ultimately, the the self that we thought we were is false. And that self, as Yeshua said, has to die. In order for you to live, you have to die. The self that's based in meanings acquired in experiences with hostility or fear attached are all a fraud and a lie. You know, the human organism is love. It's made of love. It's designed to live as love. And everything else, everything else is a lie. So if you just, you know, sit down in front of the news for a day or two, you get to see how much we've been lying to ourselves. And individually and collectively, it's time for us to clean up our lies. To apply forgiveness to those parts of our minds and restore ourselves to the truth of who we are. A whole different world ensues when we do that. So thank you for putting that stuff in the uh, in the notes for today so it's accessible to everybody. And actually, of course, in Miracles, it's lesson number two. I have given everything two. to see all the meaning that it has for me. And it actually has an exercise to do um, just to sit in a room and to look around and whatever your eyes land on and not to concentrate on anything in particular or whatever and just um, look at things and merely glance and and be quick, you know, don't like linger on it and right. to see what meaning it has for you. That's pretty cool. And when we get rid of the meanings based in noise and interference, hostility and fear, then there's a space for the true meaning of any experience to come forward. And that meaning will be delivered by the mind of love rather than out of carbon-based memory and the past. Night and day, life and death. So there's the mind of the body, the carbon-based memory system, storage system, or generational patterns, and that can, yeah, well, that'll, that'll have a meaning for everything you experience. You know, it even has meaning for things you've never experienced. Like, oh, I've never experienced this. This is dangerous. This is fearful. Or, oh, I've never experienced this. This is exciting. This is adventure. Or I've never experienced this. Oh, I should turn and run away. They're all just meanings <laughs> that are given by the mind. And then there's this other mind in us that for everything you have a pained meaning for, it has a meaning based in love. And if we've lived out of a hostility and fear-based mind, hostility and fear-based world, just you know, take a look at how much of that's going on in the world. Wow, what if that were all to be disappeared? And the only thing left were seven and a half billion people whose language, whose thinking, 
whose perception, whose interaction toward everyone and everything was based in love. How cool would that be? Well, that's what we're designed for. So if you're out there in listener land and you are on one of those stations where we can't see you in our control panel, or call in number if you want to have a conversation with us. Dial your phone, 563-999-3581. 563-999-3581. Dial that number. You'll be listening to the show directly. And then if you push 1, that will put you in phone queue. Hand will go up, beside your name on the control panel. Jean will know you want to talk to us, and she'll introduce you by your area code. So how can we support you? What's on your mind out there in listener land? We have 13 minutes. Somebody start another conversation. Actually, you were getting ready to start something before um, uh, Cecilia raised your hand. I was. And do we that? don't really have the space minutes? for that now. <laughs> no. Okay. No. Nah. But I'll, I'll, I'll do a, a little piece of it. You know, I had, uh, in the last couple of days, I went to visit a couple of friends, uh, one in South Carolina and one in North Carolina. And uh, the friend that I visited in South Carolina, we had a lot of conversation. He's been at Heartland. He did a couple of years on the support team. He's uh, really been doing his work, and uh, he's working with several people who are in uh, 12-step programs. And we got into conversations about why people abuse substances. And he had an interesting perspective, and it's it's sort of the the corollary to the perspective that I've adapted over the years of working with a lot of drug addicts and alcoholics or rageaholics or you know workaholics or whatever whatever it is that they people use and that was that you know my take has always been and he gave me a nice shade of a different perspective my take has always been that people use addictive substances or behaviors in order to anesthetize themselves against pain. It's a, a way to not feel the pain. You know, and my take is that people who especially are alcoholics or drug addicts were very sensitive beings that came into the world and there was no place for them to land. There's nowhere they were accepted or held in the space of love as they were they deserved. And the pain of that becomes a driving force to keep a, a lid on that pain, to keep an anesthetic moving. And he had a, a totally opposite perspective, which I think really fits perfectly, and that was that he, what he's noticed is that people who are addicted to substances like that 
have forgotten who they are. Don't remember themselves, experience themselves as love. And I think both perspectives are true, but it was just kind of like a, a whole different shade of conversation that, uh, that opened up from that. And, you know, when we did, back a couple of years ago, we did Recovery Wednesdays. And in the recovery community, recovery is generally seen as recovering from this thing called addiction or the disease of addiction where the perspective we took on the Recovery Wednesdays was that recovery is about recovering the truth of who you are. Returning to the knowledge that you are literally the offspring of love. And as one recovers the truth of who they are, it is the act of presence of love that dissolves the pain. And at that point, people walk away from their addiction because they experience it not as relief from pain anymore. They experience it as destroying the awareness of who they are. So we're here to be a stand, and you'll notice the first line in the current worksheet is you name yourself, you write your name down and declare who you are. So if I'm doing a worksheet, I start out, I, Michael, who am love? That's the starting point for forgiveness. To recognize who you are, whatever it is that you're experiencing in the way of an emotion is a reflection of the quality of mind energy that you're engaging in. You know, if we go to the opening words in the book of John, in Aramaic, they don't say, in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh. They say, in the beginning was the mind energy, and the mind energy became flesh. And so, if we engage in mind energy that is the opposite or unlike what we are, then we create emotions based in that mind energy. My take is that when the neuropeptide formed by thinking a thought strikes the, the receptor site on the cell or attaches itself to the receptor site on the cell, it radiates an emotion. You know, what the cell biologists are telling us is when you think a thought, that thought produces a neuropeptide, an actual molecule. The molecule lands on a cell with a receptor site that matches. And when it lands on the cell, what I'm offering is that the cell then radiates a signal as to, yay, this is good, and I'm rocking, feeling good, or, oh, my God, we're in deep trouble. This is bad stuff. That's what emotions are. They're, they're simply telling us about our creative process. And so to the objective of this work is to recover the truth of who we are and to live out of that and then recognize that anything that's ever been laid on a person, ourselves or anybody in our whole bloodline, anything that's ever been laid on them that's based in hostility or fear is all a lie. And energetically, 
is a fit subject for forgiveness. Forgiveness being the removal of what never belonged within the structure. And it takes a variety of tools to get past the tricks of the mind that keep us running in circles and, and playing out of the mind energy of that one world religion of blame, looking for somebody outside of us who's the cause of what's going on in here. And to be willing to let go of all projection speak. What's projection speak? You made me mad. You made me sad. I'm only afraid because of what you did. Look how much you terrify me. So now we've got someone who's telling their minds, pardon me, who's being told a lie by their minds and in turn is telling their minds to build a reality based in the lie. The mind structures the world you see according to the language that you use. When you lie and say, Bill made me mad, what we're saying to the mind is, mind, structure me a construct, a perception that shows me Bill and how he causes my anger. And so now, the anger that I'm in denial of. Remember our definition of denial. When I think or speak as though something outside of me is the cause of what's moving inside of me. So when I speak words of denial, you made me mad. I'm instructing my mind to take that very energy that belongs to me, but build a picture of you out of it. So that you show up in my mind with my problem attached, and I get to really believe it is your problem. When I remove what didn't belong, then that mind energy is no longer impacting the cell and resonating with this pained structure, this structure that, that comes out of pain. Now, for somebody whose whole life, and, you know, I mean, there's a really simple exercise you can do to determine how deep the brainwash is of the world. You know, we've talked several times over the years about the, uh, the point at which the FCC changed broadcast rules and determined that they were no longer going to um, broadcast signals in the way that they had done from the beginning of television, but they shifted into digital, from analog broadcasting to digital. And, you know, my take is, like, so they do that. Why would the government step up and buy everybody who doesn't have a digital receiver, buy them one that they can attach to TV so they can keep watching TV? Why would we do that? Why would, why would that happen? got to keep up with the brainwash. Now, is the TV a brainwash device? Well, just sit down. If, if we are actually beings based in love and not beings designed for hostility or fear, and language is a key as to where the balance is, sit down in front of your television set and 
have the remote control in your hand, a piece of paper and a pen. And spend no more than three minutes on any TV channel and flip from channel to channel to channel to channel to channel. Spend an hour doing that. At the end of the hour, do a tally. How many words did you hear that were based in and reflective of hostility and fear? How many words did you hear that truly and actually represented human life as it is, as active, present love? Well, the average person says, well, gee, I did that exercise and had a thousand check marks on the side where the words were about hostility or fear. Only had two or three based in love. Input equals output. If your mind, if your language, if your physiology is captured and trapped in some form of hostility or fear, then we invite you to pick up these tools, begin to remove what never belonged within your experience, and return to the truth of who you are. And the truth of who you are is you are, you are created as the active presence of love. And as Dr. Tim says, everything else is untrue. Everything else is a lie. So joining you in being that, in processing everything that is less than that in your life, in your world, in your bloodline, and delighted that you're here to share with us, invite you to have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with Dr. Michael Rice and myself, Jeannie Rice, and Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pache as we present the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We are here for two hours every Monday through Friday from 12 noon to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on MindShifters Radio. For more information on Aramaic forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org.